Jazz underway here on ESPN Plus. Alongside my man, Hercules Gomez. I'm Sevi Salazar. Ah. Great to be with you. How you doing over there, Platini? I am doing so well over here in the West Coast. Ah, I don't know what it is about watching the U.S. men's national team in Mexico play the way they do that just gives me a breath of fresh air. Yeah, I bet it's content for our show is what you're looking for there. Uh, speaking of, we got lots coming in this show. We're going to hear from Hugo Perez, the current manager of the El Salvadoran national team. Of course, played for the U.S. back in the 80s and 90s. We're talking MLS as well. Gabriel Heinze out in Atlanta. We got Gianluca Busio moving from Sporting Kansas City to Serie A. That's some pretty big news as well. Plus an Olympic preview. We're talking about the U.S. women and the Mexican men. That much later in the show. But let's start shall we, with Gold Cup. Both the U.S. and Mexico on Sunday wrapping up the group phase activity, the group phase portion of their tournament. We'll start with the U.S., a 1-0 victory over Canada in Kansas City, a victory that's good enough to give them first place in Group B. Shaq Moore, Herc, who, of course, enjoyed the Football Americas bump, does the interview and then scores a goal. 20 seconds into the game off the Sebastian Legette assist. We did have some injury concerns coming out of this one. Walker Zimmerman and Daryl DK as well. The result, Herc, no doubt good enough. What about the performance from the United States? Abysmal. Let's Ooh. not say it's, it wasn't. It Ooh. was It was bad. You thought Haiti was bad. No, this was worse. And what's worse is this. Walker Zimmerman could be out for a good amount of time. No center back depth. Donovan Pines has to come in. Hey, should that have been a penalty? Honestly, it could have very well been a penalty. Yep. You could say uh, the, the call should have been made outside. Was it going inside? We should have gone to VAR. But that could be very well be chimed up to a penalty. You could have had two penalties against because Donovan Donovan Vines had, for me, a clear-cut stone-cold penalty in the second half as well. And I don't want to pick on Donovan Vines because it's very difficult coming into your first games uh, with the national team, any senior level, and performing. Yet alone in a game where you don't get a proper warm-up or you have to come in in a, kind of an emergency notice against a team that kind of picks on you, where they make you the outlet, where, where all of a sudden Greg Berhalter should have managed the situation better. If you know you're going to play a three-center-back uh, line, if you're going to go three defenders in the back, make sure that those defenders are passing capability type defenders, that they can be good with the ball at their feet. So you have those outlets where they can step in at times into the midfield, where they can give quality uh, play onto the outside backs or onto your six so play can smoothly happen. Donovan Vines is not that player. He may be a very good defender, a very good 4-4-2 type of player, four-man back line. But in a game like that, to go like for like with Walker Zimmerman, I thought it was asking a lot out of him. So uh, very unfair to him. Uh, but overall, in general, when the producers asked what highlights would you like in this game, there was only one. <laughs> it was the 20 second, it was 20 seconds in, and it was a goal from Shaq Moore, and that was it. It was abysmal. It was terrifying at times from the U.S. men's national team. Uh, anemic on both ends of the ball, reactive, almost afraid. And it looked like if you've ever seen a fight, a prize mm -hmm. fighter, heavyweight fighter, and he gets hit, and he gets his bell rung, and he's just holding on for dear life for the round to end. That's what it looked like for a good 70 minutes. Mm. So I find it interesting that one of the first names you brought up was Greg Berhalter, because afterwards he said there was a lot of suffering. And I wonder if some of that suffering was down to him, Herc. There was a yeah. moment, because the U.S. started bright in this game, right? They get the goal, there's 15, 20 minutes where the U.S. is pretty clearly in charge. Then there's this moment right around the hydration break, and it's pretty clear. I'm not like a tactical genius or anything, but John Herdman, the manager for Canada, definitely made a change there. And after that, 
the, the momentum, the vibe of the game shifted to Canada. I don't think the U.S. ever really got it back. Did Greg Berhalter maybe get not outmanaged, but at least in that moment, outthought by the Canadian manager, John Herdman. Yeah, and sometimes Greg Berhalter himself not only gets out that, but he overthinks it. He overcomplicates it. Listen, that moment you're talking about, Ayoaki Nola mm-hmm. comes out. Who comes in? Jonathan Osorio gives him a presence in that center of the midfield. The presence of the midfield, the string passes long, and all of a sudden, possession shifts. What was a 31-69 shifts all over to Canada's favor. All of a mm-hmm. sudden, it's the U.S. Mm-hmm. men's national team with both center forwards pinned back in their own half, just letting Canada have the ball, do their thing, and it was very predictable. Uh, Greg Berhalter has at times overthought this. Now, it's roster construction. We talked about the center backs. We talked about defenders. How about the wingers? If you don't have true wingers, if Paul Ariola is out, if Jonathan Lewis isn't playing for you because he doesn't play for the Colorado Rapids, why are you playing a 4-3-3? And why do you go for a four, uh, to a two-man uh, center forward system? Where, where are your variants? Where are your ways of changing things? You should be using the scheme and the tactics to the pieces that you have, to the players that you have at your disposal. It seems to me like this was a very poorly constructed U.S. Men's National Team Gold Cup roster. Stats from last night, just for those interested, Canada outpossesses the U.S. 55-45, outshoots the U.S. 14-6. Still, at the end of the day, in Group B, the U.S. is the top team. Nine points from the three games for the United States at the Gold Cup leaves them number one. Canada number two. The U.S. will get the runner-up out of Group C. Canada, of course, will get the winner out of Group C. We know that those teams will be Costa Rica and Jamaica. We just don't know in what order they'll finish it. All right, Herc, so time for you to grade the group phase for the U.S. Like you said, three for three, nine points. What grade are you giving them, Mr. Gomez? Or should I say uh, profe? Profe. Well, I, I profe. said this was a C team, so I'm going to go with that again. This is a C-plus performance. Now, listen, I may be very hastier. I may be very just... Picking on them, if you will, because they did win. They were perfect. Three games. They won the group. What more do you want? They won what the group. What more do you want? They won the group. One goal conceded. One goal conceded. Eight four. Uh, six of those goals came against Martinique, but against Haiti and against Canada, they looked like they were holding on. I don't know how they went away one zero in both results. Maybe it was hmm. the opponent and the lack of sharpness in or around the box of said opponents in those games. So I can't be overly critical. Correct me if I'm wrong, this had a feeling to it. Now I'm gonna talk about Canada and maybe just that Haiti game, if you will. I saw this before, I've seen this movie before. I was just waiting for Weston McKinney, Gio Reyna, and Christian Pulisic to come out with goals. It was like the performance versus Mexico in the CONCACAF Nations League final. You're waiting for a set piece. Really what you're waiting for is a set piece. I'm waiting for abysmal play, but moments in a game that change a game. You know, it was more these individual performances that get you by to get you the win. And that's what it was. All of a sudden with Greg Berhalter, and, and maybe I'm picking on, on, on the roster selection, but it looked like it was more individual performance that got him out of certain games than collective. Fair enough. I think there was some one really bright spot, and that's the fast starts. It, it, one thing we're going to talk about Mexico in a little bit is Mexico is not contundente. Yeah. Right? They didn't finish. They didn't, they right. didn't get on teams early. They let that 0-0 hang around. The U.S. didn't do that. They scored in the 8th minute, the 14th minute, and the yeah. 20th second. So credit to Greg Berhalter, some um, for that with the U.S., something very impressive Good in the group Good teams find phase. ways when they're not playing well. There you go. All right, let's move on to Mexico because Mexico also found a way, and they weren't playing well against El Salvador on Sunday. This game played at the Cotton Bowl uh, in Dallas. The difference, a 26-minute goal from Chaka Rodriguez off a beautiful pass 
from Hector Herrera. All right, so Herc, your thoughts on L3's performance against La Selecta? For being in El Salvador, I thought the L3 played uh, okay. You know, <laughs> it was. Was this a Cuscatlan? What's going on What's here? What's going on here? Let me just say, I have never seen this. Mexico mm. never gets outdrawn in the United States, especially if it's not Columbus. Uh, big credit to El Salvador and what they're doing. Hugo Perez has a whole nation believing, and they came out in reinforcement. But listen, this is El Tri, and it's bad finishing again. Because if we look at what L3 is and how they played. They created more than enough chances to put the game away, but they don't. And it's, is it me or did they look tired? They mm. look tired to me after minute 60. And it, and it makes sense because Carlos Salcedo has started every game. Uh, the midfield trio of Hector Herrera, Eric Gutierrez, mm -hmm. Edson Alvarez have started every game. Rogelio Funes Moris, Moris, excuse me, and what is Tecatito Corona have started every game. Your most important players have started every single game. Very little rotation from Tata Martino. It almost seems like he doesn't have faith in his reserves or the options off the bench. He's married to this 4-3-3 that's not conducive to the elements he has. And, well, when you give a team enough chances like El Salvador to come back and can grow in confidence, that's going to happen. Yeah, lots of missed chances in this game for Mexico, Herc. And what's really worrying for me, and we just saw one right there, is that a lot of those missed chances fell to Rogelio Funes Mori. He's the guy who's supposed to come in and finish. And as long as that continues, as he continues to miss those chances, as this team continues to miss those chances, don't think for a second that the pressure's not going to build. There was 20 minutes in that second half, dude, where El Salvador was a better team. Oh, they were more far than 20 more minutes. likely. They were yeah. far more likely, I think from minute 60 to minute 80, to find a goal before Mexico was ever going to find the second. Like El Salvador played really well, or you can say Mexico played, played very, very poorly. I am interested that you noticed the same thing I noticed, which was the stadium. <laughs> when they showed that first shot of the stadium right from midfield, I could not believe how much blue yeah. um, I was seeing. Like, and you gave credit to El Salvador. I wonder if some of that is also a reflection of how fans in this country might be feeling about Mexico. That's true. And those same fans could be Mexican fans who all of a sudden mm. see a disconnect yeah. or are disheartened with, with their Mexican team and the play and the chant and the homophobic chant and just in general everything that's going on. And also, all three games were played in Dallas, one in AT&T and two in the Condor Bowl. Maybe they're just tired of paying the same amount of money to watch Mexico do what they've not been really good at doing lately. Now, I graded the U.S. men's national team. Mm. I'm going to put you on the hot spot. I need you to grade El Tri. I know it's going to hurt, but give me a grade. Okay, uh, fair enough. Let's just put it this way. I'm a much more critical, a much harsher professor, I think, oh. Herc, than you are. Oh. Okay? So they get through with seven points, two wins and a draw. I'm giving them a D minus. Okay. A D minus, the okay. lowest possible passing grade that you can give somebody is what I'll give Mexico wow. for their group phase. Before I tell you why, let me just ask you this. Do you think initially I'm being too harsh? Yes, I do. I think okay. you are. Go ahead. Okay, fair enough. So one, your number one player is injured, a significant injury and out for a long time. That's a big blow. That's a really bad thing that happened in the group phase for Mexico. It also happened in a tournament where the United States decided to send their B team. Okay. So here you are, you, you've risked Chucky Lozano's season for a tournament where the US can't even be bothered to send their A team. That's concern number one. Okay. Number two, we just talked about it. You're not 
finishing. You're and not. as well as you want to play in the 70 and the 80% possession, without goals, it means nothing, and it's a problem the Mexican national team has had for a long time. Finally, the expectation with this A team against this competition, I'm sorry, it's three for three, it's nine points. They drop points. They didn't, they did not meet expectations. So almost I could fail them just for that. Just for that. But because they win the group and just barely, I'll give them I'll give them the passing grade, the D minus. Okay. I'm trying to think of like anything positive. I will give like, you some what, what positives. What am I gonna? What is the What is the positive? Like Eric Gutierrez is playing for no, once. No, no. Is that I, my positive? That shouldn't is be because he's had one good game in his whole L3 career, and that was against a U20 Nigeria team at the Coliseum. Okay, so find me the positive then. Here's find the me positive. Why I shouldn't, Here's why the positive. I be a D this minus. goes to finishing. Four goals in three games. Three of those goals came against Guatemala, who's we only We just talked about El Salvador being the better team Hold for 20 Listen, minutes. That's got nothing to do with finishing. Let me tell you. Let me tell you. Okay, three of those goals came against Guatemala, who's only in this tournament because of the Sebastian Salazar curse. Okay, because Sebi <laughs> picked Curacao as a surprise team, and Curacao's not even here because of COVID outbreak. They're not there, okay? But it's the finishing, Seb. Look at Mexico's play. Look at the possession and the amount of opportunities they create off possession. Against Trinidad and Tobago, 0-0 game. 82% possession, 30 shots on goal. Finishing. Against Guatemala, 70% possession, 17 shots on goal. Against El Salvador, 54% possession, 16 shots on goal. Goals change games. When you don't finish, you give confidence to these teams like El Salvador, and they grow in confidence, and they can do this to you. This is a team that if they finish, we're talking about the Mexico of old. To me, it comes down to finishing. Okay, I don't need a full explanation for you, but you don't like my D minus. What then would you have given Mexico for their play in the group phase? C plus. Oh, okay. C plus for everybody then. Fair enough. <laughs> All right. Uh, let's compare the two then. United States and Mexico as they get ready to head into the quarterfinals. We know they're both into the last eight. We know they are both into the last eight as group winners. Who has bigger problems? Who's got bigger issues? Who's got bigger worries as we head into the knockout rounds of the Gold Cup between U.S. and Mexico? The U.S. men's national team. Now, listen, Tata Martino himself may have bigger worries because his job's on the line. But in general, in play in this mm -hmm. tournament, mm -hmm. I mean, Mexico's got their A-team with European stars, a very clear idea on how to play. They've got better individual performers. And the only thing they're not doing right is finishing. The U.S. men's national team, on the other hand, roster construction is an issue. Uh, you've got some underperforming individual players. You've got some very nervy moments against subpar competition. You should have probably not won 1-0 two of the three games. Uh, I don't know how it's not the U.S. men's national team out of these two. Hmm. The one thing I would agree with you there on the United States is that they've not gotten better from game to game. Like if you look at match one, two, three, I feel like they might be trending in the wrong direction, but you could just as easily say that that's down to what? The level of competition. You go from Haiti to Martinique, you go to Canada last. Canada's obviously gonna give you the biggest test. Herc, for me, this has to be Mexico because I don't see why suddenly they're gonna start finishing, right? They're going up against better competition. Why now would they suddenly start finishing? You can say it's just a small problem, but I don't understand why it would get fixed overnight. Uh, because I will tell you something I've always heard as a forward. Don't worry about not scoring goals, not finishing your chances. Worry about when you don't have opportunities to finish. They will get their opportunities because on paper, they're better than every single team at the Gold Cup. 
Hi, it's Mike Greenberg letting you know ESPN Bet is ready to take you through all the biggest sports moments this spring. The official sportsbook of ESPN has exclusive offers and markets from Scott Van Pelt, Stephen A. Smith, and me, plus many more. From the playoff intensity to finally getting out to the ballpark, there's no better time for sports fans. Sign up today. New users get a bet reset up to $1,000 in bonus bets if your first bet doesn't win. Download ESPN Bet today. What a play. Must be 21 plus and present in select states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. See app for details. Thrilled then to be joined now on Football Americas by none other than Hugo Perez, the current manager of the El Salvadoran national team. But for those of you who need a little U.S. soccer history lesson, he is a National Soccer Hall of Famer, represented the U.S. in the 80s and the 90s, was a part of that 1994 World Cup team. Hugo, welcome to the show. Bienvenido. Great to have you. Hey, um... Thank you very much for having me. Uh, it's a pleasure always to to speak to you guys. And um, you know, as you said, I'm we're here in Dallas with uh, Gold Cup, and um, so far it's been good. So I want to talk a little bit about the team that you're currently in charge of, but I feel like we got to give folks a little bit of a history lesson with El Salvador. There was a time. When El Salvador was one of the powers of CONCACAF, made the World Cup in 1970, made the World Cup in 1982, then there's a long spell of futility. There was the the match-fixing scandal in 2013, 14 players banned for life by FIFA. You take the program over just a few months ago in April. How do we go from that to now you guys being in the quarterfinals at the Gold Cup and playing really good soccer? Well, uh, I think you just mentioned... What I think um, was important for me when I decided to come here, um, you know, I was born in El Salvador and I couldn't play for the national team for El Salvador. I ended up playing for the United States. But over the years, as I retired and started doing coaching, um, I always had this issue about my country going all through all these issues and problems. And obviously, we came to the point where. Right now, I mean, we're, we're starting from zero. We're starting from scratch. And it's been difficult because, you know, uh, we don't have too many sponsors. And obviously our football in our country is not that great. Um, there's issues. Uh, there's so many other things. But I still believe, you know, and I always tell the players that, that I came out from that country. I was born there. And I, if I made it, thank God I, I did something important outside my country. I wanted to send that message to them that we can do it, but it's going to take time. It's going to take, um, also all patience. We haven't had patience for years. Um, but suddenly, you know, I, I get to the point where I, I, I take the team as an emergency because Carlos de los Cobo was the coach and he still had, um, I think a year and a half to go on his contract, but, uh, somehow, uh, him and the Federation came to an agreement and I had been the um, under-23 national team coach, and they asked me to, to try and, and, and see if I could take the team right now and try to qualify for the octagonal. And as you guys know, uh, we were able to, to do it. But um, it, it's going to take a lot, a lot of time to fix this. But I've been lucky enough, and I thank God for that, because I think, and you guys know, that the most important product on the field is the players. And uh, so far right now, they have cooperated. I've had to come and change a lot of things. Discipline was one of them. Commitment was one of them. And obviously, uh, transparency and honesty, because of what you have you know, already uh, shared, 
of the fixing up games and all that. Um, but right now we're, we're happy uh, to be taking these steps and hopefully we can improve as we go on. You're being modest here, Hugo. A historical tournament for El Salvador in this Gold Cup. Listen, not a lot of teams can open Mexico up and carve them up the way that El Salvador did last night tactically. Tell me, walk me through what El Salvador was able to do to Mexico last night. Well, I, I think they were, if you saw the game, there's there's two halves, basically. I think the first half, we were a little bit um, nervous, I would have to say. Uh, we ended up giving balls that we should have kept more. We should have been patient. And we talked about it in the, in the second half. And um, I'm, I'm trying to change the mind of our football, of our players, which is, you know, before we used to, get a goal or we used to say we're going to play Mexico or the U.S. or Costa Rica and, you know, let's pack it up. Let's play a 5 for one Hopefully we can take a tie and whatever. Um, but I, you know, we've been for the last two and a half months preaching and training and trying to change our style, our, our mindset of what we can do because our country produces players, but we're not a country that produces Six two guys, six three guys that we're only gonna, you know, punt the, the ball and, and and see what we can do on a counterattack. We're trying to give a, a different style. Obviously, every coach has a conviction of how they want to play. And my conviction is that you know we need to build out, we need to press a lot higher, we need to put pressure on the teams. And in Mexico, look, Mexico, I have to say, but it's between them and the U.S. right now as far as what their program is and the type of players they have. But I still feel that, and I remember in my old days, I, I tell the kids this, the U.S. made a big jump the, the day that we beat Mexico in the, in the semifinals in the first mm. Gold Cup. That was the, the, the day that we took that jump and we could see that we were able to compete with them. And this is, has to happen to us in, in El Salvador now. Uh, yesterday was a big test for us because obviously everybody was saying that Mexico was going to beat us and put a lot of goals and all that. But, um, you know, watching Mexico again, uh, we know they like to play. We know that um, a lot of the teams that play against them, they're afraid to attack. They're afraid to take chances. And I'll be honest with you, I, I, I don't think we have anything to lose. Uh, we're all the way on the bottom when you rank the team. So, I'm just trying to give him a, uh, a better perspective and idea and confidence that we can play if we do it right. Hugo, on this show, we talk a lot about dual nationals, a lot of times kind of how it affects the U.S. men's national team program. But I'm curious as to how your approach is to not just recruiting them, but then also the messaging back to El Salvador. Like what's been the reception from the people in El Salvador to you bringing in a lot of dual nationals who are based out of the United States? Well, it's always a, a mix. You know, sometimes I, I heard comments saying, look, he's bringing new players and he's, he's going to take away um, spots from our nationals. But I don't believe in that. I, I believe that if you have the quality, okay, if you're good enough, okay, and you have obviously the resources to represent our country, it doesn't matter if you come from the outside. You know, soccer now is globalized. And I know here, because I also, you know, I played here in the States, um, I moved here when I was 11. So there's a lot of good players that we still haven't seen 
that they can have the chance to be in our program for the national team. And the other thing is, which I think is the most important thing for me, is that these players from here are going to make our players over there better. And it's going to be a better competition. And this is what I want to create. It used to be in El Salvador that the guys who were there for about five, six, seven years, they felt that nobody can touch them. Um, but I'm trying to change that because at the end, we need to do what is best for our country. And if we're going to have 60, 70, 80% of our players that are good enough or better than what we have in our country, then we're going to do it. And I think that's going to create, again, with our players in El Salvador, a competition that they've never had before. You know, Hugo, I can't help but think of the dual nationals in the Mexican-American community with U.S. soccer. Um, and more famously, I'm going to talk about the Jonathan Gonzalez's of the world. Now we see that Efrain Alvarez has switched over. You have now Julian Araujo and possibly David Ochoa with the possibility of going from what is the U.S. men's national team to Mexico. My question to you is, why can't U.S. soccer retain these players? And in your experience with U.S. soccer, what needs to be done? I think it needs to. I think the U.S. has to have more di diversity. Um, right now, I think there's an issue within the federation that they need to fix. Um, when I was there, we we started that because um, I started to bring not because there were Latino players. I started to bring players that could fit and change the image of our country here in the United States that, were, that had the capacity and the skills. But obviously, um, they've gone. A little bit different now. Their vision is different. Um, I'm very surprised that we don't have too many Latinos in our national team anymore. But again, it has to do with the vision they have. I'm not saying that's wrong, Hola, uh, but, I, but I do say that being there, being part of it, I think they need to look into that because whether we like it or not, um, you know, we need... Let me put it this way. The United States has the capacity to have uh, one of the best national teams in the world because of the value of players from different uh, countries. The parents were, you know, moved here and kids were born here. So I would like to see more of that. Um, there's not too many Latino coaches either, uh, which I think, again, if you have a Latino coach that has the, uh, the, the skills to do that, they, they should look into that, um, but hopefully in the future they can take that into account. Hugo Perez, man, so much great information. I feel like there's much, much more we could discuss just on that topic alone. We'll have to leave it for a conversation down the road. For now, good luck in the upcoming quarterfinals at the Gold Cup. Thanks again for the time. Mucha suerte, Hugo. Gracias. Saludos a todos. Hasta luego. This podcast is proud to be supported by Jets Pizza, the number one pick in Detroit-style pizza. Why? It's simple. Jets is better. With the thickest, crispiest, cheesiest Detroit-style pizza in the country, there's no competition. Right now, get $5 off any eight-corner pizza with code 8SAVE. That's the number eight, S-A-V-E. Go to JetsPizza.com to learn more and find a location near you. Again, try Jet's signature eight-corner pizza and get $5 off with code 8SAVE. That's the number eight, S-A-V-E. Jet's Pizza. Better because it has to be. Herc, we've been waiting, waiting to utter this phrase for months. Raul Jimenez is back almost eight months after fracturing his skull in that scary incident with David Luiz last year. 
Jimenez played for Wolves on Saturday. It was a preseason friendly. There was a time, Herc, we were worried we wouldn't even get to this moment. What were your thoughts seeing Jimenez back on a field? Well, just happy for him in general as a person. Going through something like that, traumatic event to think about. Your overall health as a person being jeopardized, but then your career, your livelihood, everything you've ever known. He's only 30 years old. It's almost eight months, and he's back on the field. Albeit preseason, but it's full contact, and this is the first step. Yeah, first step is, I think, the critical part that you mentioned there. We only saw he played like 34 minutes, just 34 yeah. minutes. He missed 230 days of action. Yeah. Herc, even if even if we assume that he could get back to 100% of pre-injury Raul Jimenez, we can still accept that might take a long time, right? If you're a professional footballer, you miss 200-plus days. For you to get back to, to 100%, it's going to take a minute, isn't it? <laughs> they used to tell us it takes two days of not doing anything to let huh. go of three months of preseason's work. So imagine not being able to play for eight months and the uncertainty that comes with it. He could physically be okay, but mentally, how will he be when he comes back? How will he react? All I can tell you is he's a tremendous footballer. And if he's anywhere near the level he was, now I'm talking about, what is this? 48 goals, 18 assists, and 110 games for Wolves. If he's anywhere near that level... The competitive balance for a lot of places is going to shift. All right. Uh, well, listen, it couldn't come at a better time, right? We just spent like 20 minutes earlier in the show talking about Mexico not being able to finish. So from an <laughs> L3 perspective, seeing him back on the field, even if it is just 34 minutes is really, really good news. Of course, Raul Jimenez is back on the field. That means the transfer rumors linking him to other clubs are back online. The latest Turk actually very interesting. Have him heading to Italy. A couple Serie A clubs mentioned Roma, Jose Mourinho, Jose. as well as Atalanta. Before we, or I don't even think we need to get into specific club by club transfer rater. Um, but just think about it like timing wise. Is this moment coming off this key injury the right time truly for Raúl Jiménez to be looking for a move? Strike it up, get it going. Listen, really? the iron is hot. You have to sell, and his stock was way up, was blazing hot before this injury. So all Jorge Mendes, his agent, has to do is prove he's fit. He's only 30 years old. He's such a talent and he was in such a moment that there are plenty of teams who are going to, I don't even want to say risk, the million dollar investment, the millions of dollars in investment. There would be a risk. There would be an absolute of course, risk. You know of that. course. But if course. there is no insurance liability, there is no risk. That's what yeah. I'm trying to tell you. Physically, okay. he can play. He's a go. You make it happen. Jorge Mendes is a master at this. Jorge Mendes is the guy to do this, and he's done this with all these different types of players. So it's no surprise to me that this is happening. Of course, uh, we know the connection as well with Jose Mourinho. Roma's one of the potential landing spots. That one maybe intrigues me a little bit less. Dude, could you imagine him at Atalanta? Champions League football, the way that they play, they're like must-watch TV. Him at the top of the attack, now we're talking. That is a landing spot I would love to see. Raul Jimenez, tell me I'm wrong. No, you're not because it would be a great spot if you were. But, God, I don't know. Call me crazy. Could you imagine? Could you imagine? Him being a replacement for Harry Kane. Back with this coach, Ooh. Nuno Spirito Santo. That would be something that makes a lot of sense if he's healthy. And I think Spurs would put the, pull the trigger. Very well. The transfer rumor when it comes to uh, Raul Jimenez are truly up and running after he just took 34 minutes on the field. All right, let's transition to Major League Soccer. What a weekend we had. Another weekend that gives us the good the bad and the ugly from this league. Let's start with the good. Gianluca Buzio, it looks like he will finally, midweek, be transferred to Venezia in Syria. 
They are a newly promoted team, Herc. There were reportedly options in Portugal, in Holland, elsewhere in Italy. What do you think of the move to Venezia? You like it, Fabuzio? Listen, it's not hard to like the idea of a 19-year-old playing in Serie A. It's not mm -hmm. hard at all. I do like it, but Venezia will be a team that is fighting to stay in top-flight football, fighting to stay in promotion. It's, uh, and usually this type of team usually aren't as patient with their youth, with, with the younger players coming through. They often go with tried and proven, so that's a little worry. Also a little worry is Serie A is a very demanding league if you play in the center of midfield defensively. And at the national team level, I've not seen him with that defensive bite. I see him not as a six, but more of as an eight or a double 10. Going forward, very good defensively. And maybe this is just the last games that we've seen with the US men's national team. Mm -hmm. He lacks that presence, that bite, that ability to win duels. That is a worry for me. But if you're going to learn, and if you're going to get better tactically in a defensive environment, Italy is just as good a place as any. A few more uh, details on the move. is reported that the fee will be around 4 million euros. And our colleague Taylor Twelman actually reported could be up to $11 million with all the add-ons plus a sell-on fee for Sporting Kansas City. I love this too because of Buzio's story, Herc. You know, um, development has a million different paths, mm -hmm. not just here in the U.S., um, but globally. This kid took a chance. At 14-15, he moved from North Carolina to Kansas City. He put his faith in Peter Vermees and Sporting Kansas City. And look how it's paid off. This kid is about to make a move into a top five league. Say you, what you want about Venezia. You know, they may be going back, right back down in 12 months' time, but it doesn't matter. This kid at 19 years old, Herc, is making a move to a big five league. That tells you a lot about him and the decision to go to Sporting Kansas City and then what they did with him in the four or five years since he got there. And I will repeat, this tells you a lot about the European market and how they see the American player today. Mm. They are taking chances on players who haven't played a lot of minutes and banking on that promise. All right, let's get to the bad, Herc. Now, in our in our production meeting, you were like, I want to do the bad. I want to do the bad. Okay, all right, Charlie in charge. So uh, what is the bad here? What did you choose for the bad? I didn't choose the bad. I had the Seattle Sounders losing losing their undefeated streak. But of course the, you made it about Seattle. Of course. The best, the best club. But listen, Matias Almeida said something. I want you to tell the referee this so he has his translator say it. And guess what? <laughs> they red card the translator. They don't red card Matias Almeida who instructed the translator. Translator, they red card the guy who said it. Shoot the messenger, right? Wow. I think that's a power move from Almeida, <laughs> right? You get the translator thrown out. Next level. Let, let him do your dirty work. No problems there. You don't have to be suspended. He gets the walk. Everybody's happy. Uh, I guess. And he's got us. And our translator has a, a great story to tell. A wow. great story to tell. And too um, right, ugly. Ugly. This was an easy choice. This was an easy choice. Atlanta. United. Okay, where to start here? So, Gabriel Heinz is out uh, as the head coach after a 1-0 loss against the New England Revolution. He was in the job for just seven months. His firing comes amid allegations that the MLSPA filed a grievance on behalf of Atlanta players, Herc, with the league over Heinz's training regimen, citing numerous violations of the Major League Soccer collective bargaining agreement. Uh, was this the right move then, Herc, at the right time for an Atlanta United franchise that seems absolutely in disarray? Absolutely. And Joseph Martinez was the tip of the iceberg. You, you heard about the CBA. If you peel back the curtain, it goes as far as him 
demanding players have their phones on them and be ready to train at a moment's notice, not mm. respecting the CBA-mandated uh, training times or schedules that they could do, the amount of times in a week that it could train. And then also some just crazy stuff that you would hear about him refusing to let players drink water at training sessions. So as the team doctors had to step in and say, you can't do this, you can't legally do this, you can't make these players do, play this way or train this way. No wonder Atlanta was over-injured, had an enormous amount of injuries. No wonder they were on an eight-game losing schedule or skid, I should say. And Joseph Martinez, you ostracize the club's biggest star, the biggest personality, the one player the fans have a true feeling for, a true engagement for, you push him aside. Once that happened, you knew it was over. Mm. So let's credit some of the reporting because there was some brilliant reporting done on this. The Athletic, yes. the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, actually our former colleague here at ESPN as well, Doug McIntyre, now over at Fox, did a great job yeah. on some of the granular details. Felipe Cardenas, um, Doug McIntyre. Exactly. Yes. Behind, behind what's happened here. So you've hired Gabriel Heinze on the heels of hiring Frank DeBoer. I'm less interested now in Heinze and wondering, well, who's hiring the coaches yeah. here, Herc. If we're looking at an Atlanta United team that seems to be in decay, don't we need to look further up? Now, this is too big bold coaching hires that have to been too big, bold coaching failures. Now, isn't this on Darren Eels and Carlos Bocanegra? Darren Eels and my former uh, teammate and friend Carlos Bocanegra are definitely on the hook here. And not just the coaching hires and fires, but also the player personnel and how they've got completely this roster just all mm -hmm. wrong. If you look at the amount of money that Atlanta has wasted in coaching hires and player turnover, it's no wonder they are where they are today. And it also should tell you how lucky they were with Tata Martino, how they knocked it out the park with him, and how instrumental probably Tata Martino was in bringing talent in, in retaining talent, in building a roster, because the last two rosters they've tried to build have not been good. So this next, this next hire for them is literally make or break for one of these two, if not both. Absolutely, they are on the hook. So if I look bigger picture here, Herc, I see Joseph Martinez winning out in a one-on-one -on -one battle with Gabriel Heinze. Elsewhere in the league, I see Josie Altidore winning out on a one-on-one -on -one yeah. battle with Chris Armas. These are two of the stars, if you want to call them that, the stars of Major League Soccer, of this league. Do, do, these players, What's going on here? do these players have too much power when it comes to actually who's in charge of the dressing room, who's in charge of these clubs? You know, you said this last week, and it made me mm -hmm. think. You're absolutely right, Sebi. And it's because these clubs are handcuffed when it comes to the salary cap. When you're going to literally construct your roster around three players, you have to completely knock it out the park with these players. Mm -hmm. They have to produce for you not only on the field, but off the field. And if you miss, if you miss on the field, you're behind the eight ball with the rest of the teams around the league. Uh, so yeah, these players do have that benefit of the doubt. They do have that power over some of these coaches because all of a sudden, let's be honest, it's much easier to get rid of one person than it is 28. Yep. So it's always gonna be on the coach. Yeah, you see this in other sports, in other American sports. Yeah. And I don't have a problem if you're the Lakers giving a ton of power to LeBron. The problem with, the, with doing that with the Josie Altidore or Joseph Martinez, Herc, is these guys are not household names. They're not moving merchandise. They're not selling tickets, not on a, a national or international scale like the stars in other leagues. So to mortgage your future, to mortgage your franchise on what these guys want is a very short-term approach. And I wonder if MLS teams are going to be willing to do that for very long. We're still building up to the Liga MX Major League Soccer All-Star Game, of course. Hercules Liga MX has announced their All-Star team. Quick thoughts on this roster? 
Um, as expected, per their rules, uh, I like it. I do like it. it's a very strong roster, but one glaring uh, mission. Uh, I don't see any Chivas players. How is the biggest club in Mexico, Chivas, has not a single representative in the All-Star game? Zero Chivas players, and I don't have an issue with it. They were terrible. I was gonna say, who's the Chivas player that has the best case to even be on this team? Uh, Alexis Vega. Okay, but who do you take off the team for That's Alexis Vega? a good Vega? question. There you go. Good um, I mean, it's a tough one, right? Chivas the producer is, no is crying right now. You guys don't understand how big of a Chivas fan <laughs> the producer is. He was literally in tears in the meeting. He did not want to go on unless we spoke about Chivas. So we're going to talk about Chivas and their lack of representation. Yeah, look, I mean, being a starter on Chivas and being like a guarantee of a national team spot or a fact that you're like a star of Liga MX, that's an idea from, what, at least 10 years ago, 15 years ago now, if, if not more? Yeah, yeah now it's, it's a no longer a given. I will tell you this, I do like this system for the Liga MX All-Stars because it's merit-based. Mm -hmm. It's not a fan voting. Some of those will be coach picks, coaches pick and one commissioner pick. That's okay. But when you, when you reward good play, when you reward an outstanding season with the All-Star Game, instead of it being a popularity contest, that holds a lot more weight. Um, speaking of reward, you were telling me in the production meeting there's a difference in the compensation between yes. what MLS players are getting and what Liga Mekis players will be yes. getting for the same game. What's the scoop there? So I spoke to a few agents uh, about this, and they were like, listen, everybody's compensation for All-Star is different when it comes to Major League Soccer. Some will vary in the ten dollars to $15,000 range for being selected. <laughs> uh, one agent said some bonehead GMs will even give $50,000 to a player for being selected to the All-Star game. You know what Liga MX their players will get? Zero. Zilch. <laughs> Nada. Do you know why? They don't have a CBA. They don't mm -hmm. have proper player representation. Their Players Association is a joke. So they add on these games like the Liga MX MLS All-Star Game, Campeones Cup, Leagues Cup, et cetera, et cetera, and they don't get compensated mm. on paper by these clubs, by the league. Let's turn our attention to the women's game and actually the Olympics with the latest edition of Book It. Of course, the Olympics are, what, like 48 hours from start, and they're starting bright and early Wednesday wow. morning, or in your case, very late Wednesday night, right? I think it's 1, yeah. 1.30 a.m. Pacific time, 4.30 a.m. Eastern time in the morning on Wednesday when we get the U.S. women against Sweden. So, Herc, let's start with the women's side, the women's tournament at the Olympics. Uh, you were asked to pick who you thought would be the Golden Boot winner at the Olympics in the Women's Soccer Tournament. Who are you going with? Most goals at the Women's Olympics in Tokyo. I'm going to go with Alex Morgan. This was easy for me. Uh, the U.S. is the best team at the Olympics on paper. Okay. They're the deepest team, so that's going to mean they're going to make a good run. Alex Morgan was Golden Boot of the World Cup 2019. If this was 2020, I'd say, you know what, not enough time coming back from giving birth. Uh, that's not going to be feasible. A year later, she says she feels stronger and physically more powerful than ever. She's on a goal-scoring tear in club with Orlando Pride. I actually think this is good value, plus 600. Uh, I will take this, 110 international goals in 180 international games. I like this at plus 600. 
Yeah, I mean, I can't believe the value. You know, it's the starting striker yeah. on the best team in the tournament and the overwhelming favorite. And I love that you point out what she's doing with Orlando right now in the NWSL. Not only is she scoring, they're different goals yep. and they're well-taken goals. So if mm -hmm. you got a red-hot Alex Morgan going into this tournament, I think that plus 600 is a great value, and I think it bodes very, very well for the United States. I'll focus on the U.S. women's national team as well because Herc, the odds for them to win this are really startling. Like, they are not small favorites. They are That's massive crazy. favorites to win the gold medal. This is a this is a 12-team tournament, Herc. You never get these type of odds in a tournament. The U.S. going in at minus 175. Now, remember, on last week's show, we asked Kathleen McNamee. We said you could take the field or you could take the U.S., and she took the U.S., so I'll lean on her expertise there. If somebody who follows all of these other teams is telling me the U.S. are still the team to beat, I'll take them even at minus 165. But Herc, it also tells us just how big a favorite they are. And I think what that tells us is just how big those expectations are, not just on Vladko Andonovsky, but on some of the older players on this team, huh? Yeah. Some of these older players, I think, are playing for their next World Cup. If the U.S. wins a gold, some of the 30-somethings are coming back. If they don't, it's oh, over. I see where you're going with this. Mm -hmm. That's interesting, Sebi, because definitely a lot of plus 30 players, big time stars for the women's national team uh, over their 30s. And I see exactly where you're going with this. I see exactly what you're selling, and I'm buying. This could be a make or break for a lot of them. Yeah, it is. I don't think it'll be for the coach. I don't think Vladko Andonovsky, no. if they don't win gold, is going to be gone. But for some of the big name players, Anything but gold could mean, could mean it's the not end an easy of their group. national team It's career. not an easy group. No, absolutely not. Australia and Sweden, I mean, you figure they're going to get out of the group, but nothing, uh, nothing yeah. as we have come to learn is a guarantee. Let's talk about the men's tournament, which features 16 teams instead of 12, just 12 for the women. That's a little bit weird. We can get into why in another show. Not really sure why the men deserve more opportunity. Herc, who you got winning it all? That is strange, and we will have to touch upon that on another show. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, there's a few teams that are favored here. Obviously, Spain and their stars. Where's Mexico on this list? Production, uh, get that. What's they're, going they're on? They're not here. Look at, look at France, okay? Plus 500. Uh, I don't mind that shout. France has a lot of young players. I know a lot of their players weren't let go because this isn't a, an official FIFA uh, fixture date, so they couldn't let go of all of the players. But they've still got a lot of quality players mm. playing all over the world. Majority in France, a few players in Spain, a few players in Italy. And look at the veteran leadership. Florian Tavon, Tigres player, a player who won the World Cup with France. And Andre Pierre Gignac. This man is like 36 years old, still kicking. I love the veteran presence he brings leadership and this guy is a winner i just maybe it's sentimental pick but at plus 500 i will take my sentiment to the bank all right you can't say 36 years old like it's old when you are actually older than 36 you know that right yeah but life like my my age in life is young his age in soccer is historic it's prehistoric i should say fair enough okay so you mentioned france they actually open up against mexico France minus 120 to win in that game. Mexico plus 370 to win in that game. So clearly Mexico, not quite the favorite that France is. So I wasn't crazy enough to go Mexico to win it all. Though, Herc, you know I would love nothing more than a repeat of 2012. I try to find the odds here for Mexico to medal. And there you see them. They're in there at plus 1,200 to medal. If I'm going off odds to win, they were plus 3,300, which put them about seventh best in the tournament, right around that dark horse That's range. That's strange. 
I'd like Mexico to get a medal here. I don't know if I like it. Maybe it's a little bit of a sentimental pick. What do you think? Is that plus 1,200 good value or bad? Uh, that's not bad value because if they can make it out of their group, the crossover isn't too bad. And I definitely think with one game to make it to a, a medal match. Yeah, I like those odds. It, I tell you what, it, what is it? Plus 3,300 you said for them to get the gold? Yeah. Our, our friends at Deportes have them as favorites over Spain. Like something's going on. <laughs> like you may say you have a sentimental piece about you, but at least you have some realistic like knowledge when it comes to saying, I don't want to spend my money. I don't want to just let it go to waste. Yep, yep. Plus 1,200, that's my pick for it's Mexico at the Olympics. Plus 1,200, not for Mexico to win gold, but for Mexico to get any one podium, of podium. the three medals. Yeah. Exactly, to get on that podium in Tokyo. All right, that's it for uh, this edition of Football Americas. We've got plenty more to come on Thursday's show. Of course, we'll be looking ahead to the quarterfinals oh, at the Gold oh, Cup. We'll also be talking Olympics. Both the U.S. and Mexico will have played their first games in Tokyo. We'll Let's see you next go, week. Savvy. I'll see you here in L.A. Then the Gold Cup.